there were probably close to a dozen that I saw um, who still have work to do even on a Sunday morning. Um, so as you're leaving, uh, we just prayed for them corporately, but I would uh, ask you as you're leaving to, to find a space around here and, and um, say your own private prayer as well. Just um, it's, it's, a, it's, a big, it's a big job. Um, as Evan said, they're coming in on their off hours to, to finish up. Um, so anyways, back to your regularly scheduled sermon. In a day, everything had changed. It felt like a summer. Uh, it had felt like a summer like any of the other summers that I'd had before, and was giving way to a first day of school like any other first day of school. Except apparently nothing was going to remain the same. It was my first day of school in seventh grade, my first day of school as a middle schooler. I figured when I went from elementary school to middle school, a lot of things would stay the same. I had good friends from Hunt Valley, where I went to elementary school, go Hawks. Uh, so I wasn't anxious about going to a new school. I knew people, I had friends, I felt like I was going to be good. But on that first day, I realized that sometime between June and September, for no reason and with no warning, everything had changed. Everything was different. I got a little bit of an inclination of this at middle school orientation. It seemed like there was a different social arrangement than the one that I was used to from elementary school. I'm sorry about all the, the, the that. Um, we're trying out new microphones and I, I got the lapel. Is, yeah, I might need to do that. I'm sorry about that. Forgive the, the technical whatever. It's distracting me. I assume it's distracting no? There are times in our lives when we realize that something has changed, where something is different. Sometimes it's a change that we initiate, a change in career. A decision to have children. Getting married. Sometimes it's a change that comes at us. Losing a job. Getting a diagnosis. Suffering a loss. And sometimes it's a change that just simply comes with the passage of time. Moving to a new school. Moving beyond school. Retiring. But oftentimes when we hit these changes, we realize that we are about to be, that things are about to be incredibly different. When I started middle school, I had an idea that things might be different. I mean, it was a new school, new teachers, new routines. I wasn't prepared for just how different things would be. Having the school organized into teams meant that relationships would be very determined by what team you were on. Increasing the number of students and adding puberty into the mix meant that the composition of friend groups was completely reset. Everything was different. I hope all of our tweens have made it back into the back by now. I don't want to scare them. Everything was different. Everything had changed. This morning, I want us to look at a story in the Bible where everything changed within someone's life. In church, we call this a conversion moment. And the one we're going to look at is one of the biggest, most important conversion moments in the Bible. And truly, in a moment, everything changes. Let's take a look at the first part of the story, and I might break in here or there for some editorial comments. We're starting in Acts chapter 9. 
Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So Saul was this guy who hated Christians. He was a zealous Jew who found it beyond offensive that a group of people who claimed to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would also worship a human being. These Christians claimed that a man named Jesus from Nazareth was Lord, a title reserved for God alone. And equating this Jesus with God was the height of idolatry. I am the Lord your God, the commandment read, you shall not have any other gods before me. These Christians were in violation of this central commandment and therefore deserved punishment, namely death. So Saul made it his personal mission to hunt down Christians and see them put to death. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you, mu what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias? Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he had seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him and restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. So Saul becoming Paul is literally the poster child for conversion. You look up conversion in the dictionary, and you'll see, well, a definition of the word conversion. What did you expect to see? But that definition would apply really closely to the story we just read. Saul is one person, has one motivation, he's on a mission. And then in a moment, or a series of moments, he becomes a different person. He has this intense experience where Jesus is literally made present to him in a new way. And just for poetic justice, he becomes blind in need of sight. As if God wanted to make it clear to him that he had spiritual blindness that led him to doggedly persecute Christians. Although we could argue that all persecution stems from a certain blindness. But Paul has this experience, goes to Ananias to recover his sight, and is baptized. The guy who arrested people who were baptized so that they could be killed is himself baptized. Literally everything has changed. 
Christians will often talk about having conversion experiences. Likely not as drastic as Saul Paul's, but they will talk about how they had this charged, transcendent experience of God in Jesus Christ, such that they couldn't help but convert, where spiritually everything had changed. I grew up in the church, so my particular conversion wasn't quite so pronounced. I didn't have a time of not being a Christian, or at least not being part of a church, that I could before then becoming a Christian or becoming part of a church. But there are particular moments in my life when I remember God's love becoming real to me in a new way. And I chose this faith for myself. In high school, on mission trips and retreats, where church changed from something my parents took me to, to something I welcomed for myself. Or there were these moments in college where faith became something that was the bedrock of my life instead of merely the place that I found community. So for me, there were multiple conversions as I entered new stages of faith and my relationship to faith and the church and Jesus matured and grew. Some of you might remember a time when you weren't a Christian. A time when you didn't know Jesus. A time where you wrestled with your worth. A time where you wrestled with whether or not you were good. And then you heard about Jesus and had this experience wherein God said, I love you and I'll love you no matter what. Some of you might remember a time when you had no faith. And then had this transcendent experience of God and infinity and eternity. Some of you have had an experience where you had no touchstone to faith. And then it was truly real for you. And real for your life. And then some of you might have been in church your whole life, or at least were in church as children and are in church now. And in between, you've had a series of steps, moments, experiences that have turned faith from the thing your parents did to now the thing that you do. All of this is conversion. But here's the thing with conversion. It's way more beginning than end. There's a part of Christian culture that sees conversion as not just the thing, but perhaps the only thing. That if we are Christians, it's our job to get other people to convert to being Christians, and that's our one and only job. That when we talk about our lives, when we share our testimonies, we talk about the things that led to our conversion, we talk about our conversion experience, and that's our testimony. And don't get me wrong, all of that is important. And clearly, in the Saul-Paul story, that moment of change is of incredible importance. It's retold in great detail. It's just, it's not all that's important. In fact, it's the part we can often leave out, what comes after the conversion, that Acts seems to think is the most important. I started by talking about how one day everything changed for me, namely when I started middle school. But middle school didn't stop after the first day, as much as I might have wished it did. There were a lot of days after that. A lot of days where I had to learn how to live after the change occurred. A lot of days where I had to figure out how to live in the newness that had been created. The same thing happens in our conversion experiences. Oftentimes in church we read and talk about the part, this part, the first part, of Saul Paul's story we've read so far. We don't often read what comes next, which is this. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? 
Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plans. Day and night they kept a close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that, Saul, the, and that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. So this huge thing had happened to Saul Paul. He goes from persecutor, hater of Christians, to loving Jesus. He's one of them now. And the writer of Acts initially seems like everything is going great. That everything is going to be immediately different after this experience. At once, he began to preach that Jesus was the Son of God. This change has happened and immediately we see a change in regular behavior. Never before would Saul have preached in a synagogue or anywhere that Jesus was the Son of God. He killed people for saying such things. And here he is, immediately preaching in the synagogue the truth that he mere days prior considered the highest of idolatry. So see, conversion experience, boom, everything different. Except not so fast, my friends. Because just as soon as he starts preaching in the synagogues, people are like, wait, isn't this the guy who hunted down Christians? What's the deal here? And others plotted to kill him. And when he goes to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles, they're scared that this all might be a trick. So they won't see him. It's only when Barnabas vouches for him that he can actually get into the city and talk to people. But he's brash and debating people and folks are still on edge around him, so he's sent away. And when he's sent away, Luke, the writer of Acts, tells us, then the church had a period of peace. I mentioned earlier that this story, Saul Paul's conversion, is like the prototypical conversion story. And yet in the immediate aftermath, the converted Saul flees one city because people want to kill him, and is expelled from Jerusalem because he's agitating too many people in the church. The end of this prototypical conversion story sees the church in a period of peace, but that's literally only because the, uh, the, the converted person walks off stage. Again, we, we tend to think of conversion as this jump from one binary state to another. This moment where a monumental change occurs, and then not so much afterwards. I wasn't a believer, now I am. But that's not really how the book of Acts talks about Saul's, Paul's conversion when we read the longer narrative. There was this huge moment. But then there's all this other stuff that comes afterwards. Where Paul becomes used to living in his new world, his new community, his new self. And the people around Paul get used to Paul not trying to kill them. And seeing him as a leader within the Christian community. And not an enemy to the Christian community. And where Paul is healed of his own faults and failings and the consequences his prior actions had caused. We have a few names for this period of what happens after conversion. The first is sanctification. 
It's how the grace of God moves in us to make us more and more loving, more and more like Jesus. It's how the grace of God heals us of the hurts we felt and the hurts we've caused. It's what began when people said, isn't that Saul who persecuted our friends and continued when they saw him teach with authority? The other word for this is discipleship. And in many respects, discipleship is how we are sanctified. As we submit to Jesus, as we follow Jesus, as we do the things Jesus asked us to do, we are healed through the means of God's grace. It's what happened when Paul left Jerusalem on the disciples' orders. He could have stayed there. He could have made a stink. He could have refused to go. He could have said, don't you know who I am? I was a leader in the Jewish camp. Don't you want me here being a leader in the Christian camp? But he followed. He did what they asked of him. And I think when he got to Tarsus, he made himself a student. He learned, he followed, he obeyed. And only through that is he able to become the person that the second half of the book of Acts is all about. I think what Saul Paul needed following his conversion experience was a period of reorientation. Or just orientation. Everything had changed and he needed some guidance to regain his bearings. To see where he was in relation to others. To see where he needed to go. We're really bad at that in the church. We're bad at helping people understand how to move forward in their discipleship in light of what God has done in their lives. We're bad at providing that guidance. We just assume that y'all will know what to do. Or that you'll figure it out for yourselves. Think about this. We provide more guidance with how to get high schoolers to the cafeteria than we do providing people in church guidance on how to access the means of grace. And high schoolers are like preternaturally disposed to eat when they're hungry. So for the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about discipleship, or at least discipleship as we do it here at Spirit Life. It's our SNL orientation. For us, discipleship occurs in three primary ways. Worship, small groups, and service. This is how we believe you can encounter Jesus Christ here at Spirit Life. So we want to talk about some of those things over the next few weeks. This has been a long introduction, and I'll briefly say a few words about worship here in a minute. The next two weeks, we're going to talk about two different types of service. Service within the church and service outside of the church. And then we're going to talk about small groups. But quickly, let me say a few words about worship, or at least why I think worship was important to Paul's discipleship. I think it's telling that the first thing that Paul did after his conversion was go to church. He went to the synagogue and he preached that Jesus is Lord. I think he needed to do that. Because one of the primary things that happens in worship is that we remember who we are and whose we are. Think about how many times after his conversion people try to tell Paul who he was. Isn't this the guy who persecutes Christians? Isn't he on the other team? Isn't he against us? And all the while, Paul was in church saying, Jesus is Lord. He was reminding himself of who he was. And he was hearing the voice of Jesus say, you are mine. When everyone around him wanted to say, you're not one of us, Paul. Paul was in church. Paul was in worship, hearing God and Jesus Christ say, yes, you are. Yes, you're mine. We need that too. We need to be reminded that we are God's child. That we are loved. We need to sing about the God who loves us. Hear our forgiveness pronounced. And taste the free love of God made possible by grace. 
And in the end, that's the heart of worship. Praising God because of who we are and because of whose we are. Worship is our great reminder. It's our great memory. Paul could have listened to the myriad voices around him saying he was really Saul. But worship allowed him to hear the voice of Jesus saying, no, you're Paul. And from that knowledge of who he was and whose he was, Paul could move forward. Paul could continue to follow Jesus. Now before we end, I have something to give you. It's a syllabus. <laughs> Sorry, I'm looking at the teachers. They're not loving this. <laughs> take one and pass it around. I'm going to keep one for myself so I can model it. And what it has here um, is um, we're going to be talking about how discipleship works here at Spirit Life. And to help you live into that, here's a list of ways that you can engage each of those areas of discipleship this fall. It's got on the front page, you'll see our sermon series for the rest of the calendar year listed. Um, on the second page, a number of small groups, both Sunday morning and some that meet during the week. And then some service opportunities, um, both uh, outside of the walls of the church and inside the walls of the church. And then some special events that we have coming up. Um, now, I want to say a couple things about this. And I also have uh, another thing to give you. Part of why we're, we're handing this out is uh, so that you all can know what's going on. Ways that you can grow in your faith, grow in grace this as we begin this fall. Because I think we've got a number of great things coming up that will help you, help you do that, help you in your discipleship. We have a number of things ongoing that could help you grow in your discipleship. The other side of it, though, is um, in giving this to you now, we hope maybe that you could invite someone in your life to take part in some of the things we have going on. Um, I'm going to pass out these cards that are for the next sermon series that we're going to be doing called Am I Enough? Um, here's why uh, I, I, we want, I want you to be able to invite other people. And here's why we have these sermon series cards and uh, all, that, all that jazz. Our vision here at Spirit Life is to be a living sign of God's presence in our community. And we hope that through a number of things that we are doing this fall, we can live into that vision. When I think about people in my life, when I think about uh, people I know in this community, when I think about members of my family, I see people who worry about whether they're enough, whether they're good enough, whether they're good enough parents, whether they have enough money, whether they're doing enough in their job to give them purpose. People just wonder, am I enough? And if we're a living sign of God's presence in our community, I think one of the things God wants to say to this community is, you are loved. God loves you. Well, God would say, I love you. The gospel frees us of our desperate attempts to prove our own worth. And if we're a living sign of God's presence in our community, we should be announcing that freedom to folks in our community who are struggling with measuring their own worth. Um, so we're going to be doing, we're going to be living into a lot of that um, in, in the next few weeks. Um, and we've got a number of events to go along with that. A, a companion Sunday morning small group that's going to be on The Gift of Imperfection, a uh, book by Brene Brown that is uh, in a de-churched world becoming the new gospel. Um, 
and a couple book clubs that are going to be on uh, books along that go along with that sermon series. Growing in, uh, connecting to God and connecting to other people in small groups can be incredibly freeing for people. Um, I think a church that collects um, 200 units of bug spray and a church that is uh, serving outside the walls of the church and is um, collecting more things that people in our community need like coats and socks uh, is being a living sign of God's presence in our community. Saying to a marginalized group, there are people who care about you. Uh, and so it's not so much just so that we can have more and more people on Sunday mornings. It's because we believe this is what God is calling us to do uh, in this community and not just inside these walls here on Sunday morning. That God is calling us outward to bless the community uh, through a variety of ways. So that's like the third sermon I've preached this morning, so I'll stop there. Um, but um, yeah, so take the syllabus home. Um, Put it on your refrigerator, a place where you can remember, so that you can grow in your discipleship, grow in your faith um, through ministries of this church this fall. One of the ways that we are continually reminded who we are and whose we are is through communion.